When I was selecting today's passage, um, I was using a, a resource that I found with scripture suggestions, and they suggested Psalm 104. So I was going through it and I was looking at this passage and I got a little irritated because today is Animal Sunday and I just wanted some verses about God's care for the animals. Why did this psalmist have to keep inserting people and nature in there? But then, of course, as I sat with that, I realized it's because we are not separate. We are not separate from animals, from nature, from the, uh, and from the God who creates and tends and provides for all of us. We're not better than, we're not more valuable than, we're not more necessary than the grizzlies or the oceans or the trout or the Amazon. And in fact, this world will manage just fine without human beings whenever we come to an end, which will be long after you and I have passed. Um, but we have a creation story that sets us up to believe that we are more valued, more important. In both Genesis 1 and 2, God does have a special focus on human beings. In Genesis 1, God tells the humans to master or subdue the earth, depending on the translation you read. And in Genesis 2, God creates all the animals in an attempt to find a helper or a companion for the first human. And we're also, of course, a culture that values the new. And humans are one of the newest creatures on the evolutionary block. We've only been around a few dozen thousand years compared to the millions year old ancestors of birds and reptiles. In fact, I just heard on the radio, I think it was last night, a lady in PEI was walking along the shore and she fed, just happened upon something like a 300 million year old fossil. So when you compare 300 million years with, I don't know, the 40 or so thousand years that Homo sapiens has been around, it's, um, yeah, we're pretty young still. And we certainly haven't been around, around as long as water or glaciers or dirt or bacteria. It's easy to feel that we, as the newest kids on the block, are the, the apex, the summit of evolution. You know, particularly when you see those, um, you know, that image of like the progression of uh, human beings from sort of the small crouched over ape all the way through the Neanderthals and everything. It, it's sort of easy to feel like, ta-da, we've arrived. You're welcome, world. But that's a very different worldview from one I read in a, a beautiful, thoughtful book by an indigenous scientist. It's called Braiding Sweetgrass. And she does this um, extraordinary job of bringing together both her uh, knowledge and background and research as a biologist with her indigenous heritage. And um, she talks about how in her traditional worldview, humans are the ones with the the most to learn because we're newest. So um, I don't know what we have to learn from rocks who have been around the longest, but maybe there's something. 
And I myself do see and believe that sometimes our valuing of human life um, at the expense of others can result in sin and devastation. So we are witnessing the um, disappearance of pollinators and we need them. We need them for, for farming and our gardens and eating and our well-being. Um, we uh, have a long history as a, as a species of using animals for cruelty, for entertainment, um, and there are many ways in which we have housed or raised animals for, uh, for their fur or their meat, and many of those ways are dehumanizing to us and cruel to them. I don't think that this is what God had in mind when God created us and said, look after this world. But there is, of course, scriptural foundation for human dominance and mastery. So what do we do with that? And this is where I think the Bible gets interesting. This is one of the things I love about our faith. When we are presented with um, head-scratching questions of, well, the Bible says this, and yet it's resulted in this. And so how do we carry them? I think we dive deeper. We, instead of saying, well, the scripture didn't really mean that, or I'm going to ignore that bit, I think we dive deeper and we find the places where scripture actually right next to itself presents other possibilities. I heard once um, someone say that instead of thinking of the Bible as a book, we should almost think of it more as a library, that it contains multiple books within it. And so that means that whenever we have a head scratcher from scripture, we can find other answers and guidance within other books. So Genesis 1 may use the words master or subdue, and Genesis 2 may seem to create animals as an afterthought. But Genesis 1, in, in Genesis 1, God also tells the humans that they are responsible for the care of the earth and all her creatures. Genesis 2 has the first human being, the Adama, or earth creature, naming the animals. Well, you can't name something without entering into relationship with it. I mean, think of all the pets you've had in your life for which you've come up with maybe very childish names when you were little and maybe names from Shakespeare when you're an adult. Um, but when you, when you name something, you take on a responsibility. Think of naming your children. I mean, what did that do? I don't know, because I don't have children, but the act of asking yourselves, okay, what name do I like? And what name seems to fit this kid? And I've heard stories certainly of people who, you know, they've got their name picked out and then they have the baby and they go, oh, no, 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 that, that name's not gonna work. Suddenly you're presented with this small human being who's, who in their infancy tells you something about who they are. Naming is an act of, of relationship 
So we are in relationship with the animals of this world. And then, of course, we have today's song. This hymn of praise to the wonders of God's creativity interwoven together like the three strands of a braid. Us, the animals, and the waters, and the rocks, and the trees. And the waters, and the rocks, and the trees are valued in and of themselves, as we heard last week in the story of Genesis 1. God creates creation for the sake of creating and is in relationship with creation. But the plants and the waters also sustain life for both us and domestic and wild animals. God values animals not only because of their relationships with human in terms of, yes, their labor and hope and also presumably their love, but also the wild donkeys and the wild birds just because they are. And of course, in ecosystems, we know every animal has a role to play and is part of the life of another animal, but also of the earth. Before we opened up this land for homesteading, the bison, of course, roamed this land. And the bison had a certain relationship with the prairie grass. So that, you know, the bison provided the manure and made sure that the prairie grass was kept low so that fires didn't overtake. And in return, the prairie grass fed the bison. And I'm sure there's much about that whole relationship and that system that I don't know about. But there is a complexity of design that is inseparable and extraordinary. Now, there's many obvious reasons that we humans need the world around us. Plants and animals provide materials for the basics of life, water, food, shelter, clothing. Um, historically, they've also provided materials for tools, for toys, for musical instruments, and much more. But when we are responsible for something, when we name something, when we're in a relationship, as I said, and the mistake that I think we sometimes make is to believe that the relationship is one way, that we as in the in the story we've absorbed that we are the 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 apex of evolution it can feel sometimes that others are here to serve us but we have things to learn from animals for one patience if you've ever had to train an animal, if you've ever had to work with an animal, if the, the, the more anxious and angry you get, the more they're going to respond. And so there is something about working with animals that if it's going to go well, we've got to take a step back and take a deep breath and learn to be patient not only with ourselves, but with this animal. There's also teamwork. Uh, one of the accounts that I follow on Instagram is um, a young shepherdess in Northern England and watching her video of working with her dogs and the way they do this, you know, they're, they're just so ready to go and they're so keen to work and they're so 
eager to do the thing they've been trained to do and to watch as these animals work with so much focus and give their all to it. There's something so generous in that. I am, as you know, a city person, not a farm person, but I remember also reading the memoir of someone who wrote about how she um, never understood why the horses she worked with were so willing to put themselves into work and to work with her and for her. Um, tenacity is another thing we can learn from animals. And I've watched in awe and amazement as maple bugs doggedly crawled around my office all the way through, I think probably January. Like, my gosh, I don't know what you think is gonna happen, but um, I admire your persistence. That is something. And also the ability to be in the moment. Um, animals are not perfect, but, and sometimes it'll drive you bonkers the way they are in the moment saying, is it supper yet? Is it supper yet? Is it supper now? But they are by and large, um, pretty free of the, of the way humans can hold on to bitterness and resentment in our memories of the past and the way we can hold on to fear and anxiety in imagining a future. Now, it is, of course, easy to romanticize and simplify, right? Animals can be jerks. Um, you've probably all encountered an animal that didn't like its fellow creatures. Um, animals can be bullies. Um, animals can uh, be aggressive. And of course, for folks who raise livestock or crops, they can pose a threat to well-being and uh, livelihood. But they can also do things human can't. They can survive in places like the Arctic and the Sahara. I was listening to some nature program about the way that ants survive in the Sahara Desert and they, the way they orient themselves to the sun and remember where their nest is when they go out to get food. It was, it was amazing. Like, how many neurons does an ant have? I don't know, not many. And yet it has this extraordinary ability to orient itself and live and ensure survival in this barren landscape. They can and and th they can swim thousands of miles in a year. Thousands, they can fly thousands of miles and they return to the exact same spawning grounds or nest in which they were raised. How do they do that? It's can you like it's taking us so much work and research to try and figure that out. Or think of the way a hummingbird hovers in the air. I've got one that likes to come um, sample my hollyhocks, and a few times it's hovered right in front of the window. I, I don't know if it's checking out the cats or taunting the cats, but just the way it goes zoom, zoom, you know, and how many millions of dollars do we humans have to spend in order to even attempt the same thing in a helicopter? And in my experience, animals can love in a way that humans sometimes just can't. As many of you know, I'm a dog person. And when I was part of Canadian Memorial United Church in Vancouver, our music minister had this beautiful chocolate lab named Emma. And there were some Sundays when I showed up at church, I was tired, 
and I was stressed and particularly before my depression was diagnosed and my mental health was not great. There were some days that I just wanted to have nothing to do with people. And I just wanted to see Emma because Emma had no expectations of me. She was just glad to see me and she would show up with love and enthusiasm no matter how cranky I was. And that, to me, taught me something about God's love. The way it is just there. The way it is so healing just to sit without words, but with, you know, just a wagging tail saying, I am so glad you're here. Just to show up and be loved for being there. It's amazing. How can we learn to love like that? How can we learn just to be there for one another without needing to fix or change, without explaining or reacting? How can we learn to learn to take each other to accept one another as we are? And how can we learn to see the world this world, God's world, as the psalmist does, full of God's handiwork, bound together, intricately woven together in relationship. This is our task and our privilege, friends. This is why we celebrate this season of creation, to be taught anew, not only through our minds, but through our senses and through our bodies, through our hearts and through our souls about God's work, God's love, and God's hope. Amen.